0: I got to be honest, Nick, we've been doing this show for years now and I still don't entirely grasp the court system. Can I say that on this you show? Can say that. Yeah, because we've got district courts, right? Circuit courts, courts of appeals, uh, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court I I pretty much have, but like everything else, it's it's a tangled web.
1: Well, I hope We can untangle that web today, Hannah. And actually, I think it might be more appropriate to think of it as a ladder instead of a web. Because though television and movies make it seem like cases end with the judge announcing a verdict, for many cases, that is just the first step on the ladder. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice.
0: I'm Hannah McCarthy. And
1: today we're talking about the federal judiciary system and how a case can go from that first trial all the way up to the Supreme Court.
0: Okay, Nick, I just want to make sure I understand the difference between the federal judiciary system and the state judiciary system. Because most people, if they're going to be dealing with the legal system, say a divorce or a contract dispute or even like a traffic violation. That is all happening in state court.
1: Yes. And uh, to complicate it, every state has completely different laws. Federal laws are for the country as a whole. But I will say that individual state court systems do look a lot like the federal court system.
0: Like the same structure.
1: Right. And what we're discussing today, you know, trial courts and appeals and the Supreme Court, it's probably pretty similar to what you're going to see in your own state.
2: So there's three main levels to the federal judiciary. Um, the first is the district court level, which is the trial court level.
1: This is Erin Corcoran. Civics 101 talked with her back in 2019. Then she was a professor at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. And she is now the executive director for the Crock Institute of International Peace Studies.
2: And there's 94 federal district courts in the United States. Pause there. We got to define it. What's a trial court? Sure. So trial courts hear the questions for the first time, and they're primarily concerned with working through the facts of the case, trying to understand what the different issues are and developing um, sort of a timeline, a sequence of events, what happens, um, and then also um, what kind of legal recourse the parties may have. If you don't like that decision, either party in the civil law context can ask for the appellate court to review the decision of the district court.
1: And we'll get to those appellate courts in a minute. But Hannah, when you think of the popular depictions of court proceedings, you're most likely thinking about a trial court.
2: Lawyers on either side. Usually you have a jury. Um, people are called up to testify. Um, it's sort of what you know you see in Law & Order um, on TV. That's a trial court.
1: And there are trial courts in the state judiciary system as well, but for cases involving federal law, what we're focusing on today, we've got these 94 district trial courts.
0: Are these broken up geographically somehow?
1: Yep, every state gets at least one district, uh, including the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, but some states with much bigger populations, they're divided into two, three, or four districts. And we also have territorial courts for Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, Those are like district courts with like a few differences.
0: So do these district
2: courts see every case that is not relevant to state law? A federal court is a court of limited jurisdiction, and they basically have um, jurisdiction over constitutional questions. Does this law violate my First Amendment rights, my right to freedom of speech, freedom of association? A federal district court would be the court that would hear that claim. They also can hear what we refer to as federal question claims. This is sort of Congress saying if this question is about federal law, you know whether or not an agency has the authority to do something. That would be another example of the kind of question that that court could hear.
1: Hannah, you may remember a little case that we've talked about in several episodes, Tinker v. Des Moines.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. That was the case about First Amendment rights of students during the Vietnam War, right? There were black armbands involved
1: yeah and if you want to do a deep dive into that case and other cases of free speech in schools check out that episode the link is in the show notes but today tinker v des moines is going to be our real life example of how a case moves through the federal judiciary system all the way up to the supreme court let's do this all right short version tinker v des moines 1965, Mary Beth Tinker and her brother John, along with her friend Christopher Eckhart, wore black armbands to mourn the dead on both sides in the Vietnam War. These were worn in protest, and they were suspended, and they sued their school district for that suspension. And here's a quick clip of John Tinker talking about what happened when the school board got wind of their plan to wear these armbands.
3: And the principal got a hold of the other principals in town and they had a meeting and they decided to not permit the wearing of black armbands. And then I went to classes uh, uneventfully for the first half of the day. The first uh, period in the afternoon, there was a phone call. John Tinker report to the office. So I did. And I talked with the principal of the school for a long chat, maybe 45 minutes or so. And uh, he said that he thought maybe I'd gotten bad information or information from bad sources. I might There might have been some communist influence that would cause me to think the way I did about the war. He said that uh, it's going to hurt your college career and so on. And at the end he said, um, I'm going to ask you to take off that armband If you take it off and go back to class, it'll just be treated like nothing happened at all. He said, but I don't think you're going to do that, are you?
0: Well, we wouldn't be talking about this case if he did.
1: That's right. Uh, The students were suspended. Uh, They sued the school district in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa, saying the policy against these armbands that had been created violated their First Amendment rights.
0: Aha, so this is a First Amendment case, which means it has to do with federal law and not state law, which is why it was filed in a federal court, yes?
1: Yes. Uh, The district court sided with the school district and dismissed the case.
0: Okay, but we know they appealed it.
1: They appealed it. Yeah, a party can, in most cases, appeal the decision to a higher court, known as an appellate court, if they think the lower court was wrong in some way. These higher courts are the next level up in the ladder. They're called the United States Courts of Appeals, also known as circuit courts. And there are 12 geographical circuit courts and one federal circuit court.
0: So how does someone know which circuit court to appeal to?
1: Circuit courts cover different regions. So 93 of the districts are lumped into 11 circuits, and the District of Columbia gets a circuit court all to itself, and that's known as the DC Circuit. And those D.C. courts cover a lot of federal legislation, given that the U.S. Capitol is located in that district.
0: And you also said there is a Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. How does that one work?
1: The Federal Circuit Court, unlike the other circuit courts, it's not dependent on geography, but the type of case. So notably, the Federal Circuit Court deals with cases about patents, uh, federal employee benefits and government contracts. When a case moves upward in the chain, any decision in the higher court takes precedent over the lower court.
0: Now, does the appellate court hear the whole case again?
4: Most of the work of an appellate court is
1: done in writing. This is Bazad Mirhashem from the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Civics 101 originally talked to him back in 2019. What happens is if
4: they agree to hear a case, then the parties submit briefs. Those are... Documents in which both sides present their arguments in writing.
2: That appeal is less dramatic. Most of that work is done before they actually present the case to the court. Um, and it's all done on with written briefs. And then the court may have what's called an oral argument, an opportunity for each party to give an oral summation of their legal arguments to um, the appellate body.
1: A group of circuit court judges might vote to do one of four things. They can uphold the lower court's ruling. They can reverse the lower court's decision. They can remand it. That's sending it back to the lower courts to be reheard. Or finally, they can modify that decision. In the case of Tinker v. Des Moines, the Tinker family appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, and a tie vote by the judges upheld the ruling by the district court.
0: And this is where the Supreme Court comes
1: in. Yeah, they had one more level they could climb on that federal judiciary ladder.
0: All right. But before we get there, just a quick question. So you've got all of these circuit courts that are ruling on cases that come to them based on their geography. But what if you had a situation of two circuit courts hearing similar cases and coming up with different decisions? Like, Say a group of students in Florida also wanted to wear clothing in symbolic protest of war. And the circuit court covering Florida said that Actually, it was a violation of First Amendment rights for a school to
2: ban students from wearing certain clothes in symbolic protest. I think with respect to the different circuits, um, because they are regionally based and geographically based, reflexively, their opinions will be different sort of in part based on sort of what kind of cases come up through them. The circuit courts are only hearing appeals that are coming from district courts in their circuit. So, for example, if... Um, a New Hampshire judge's decision was appealed to the First Circuit and a California or Washington State judge's decision was appealed to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth and First Circuit could in theory have come up with different rulings. And that would be what we refer to as a circuit split where there is disagreement among the circuits. And so the decision by the First Circuit would be what everyone living in the First Circuit would have to abide by, and those in the Ninth Circuit would have to abide by the Ninth Circuit ruling.
1: And we all know who loves a circuit court split, the U.S. Supreme Court. And we're going to get to that right after the break.
0: But first, a warm and gentle reminder that Civics 101 is produced by a non radio station, meaning that for the most part, we sing for our supper. If you enjoy Civics 101, if you learn anything from it, I know I do, please consider giving us a donation at civics101podcast.org.
1: All right, we're back. We're talking about federal courts. And let's look back at our federal judiciary ladder real quick, Hannah. We've got district courts where trials happen. There are 94 of those spread out across the country. And then we've got the U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeals. There's 12 of those and one federal court of appeals.
0: Okay, I think this means that we have finally reached the Supreme Court. We have talked about a lot of Supreme Court cases on this show, and a lot of them started months, if not years earlier, in lower courts, in district or state courts. What makes a case worthy of the Supreme Court?
1: All right, so as we said, district courts hear the original cases. That means they have something that's called original jurisdiction. Now, federal circuit courts hear appeals, meaning they have appellate jurisdiction. But the Supreme Court is special. Here's Pazad Mirasham.
4: The U.S. Supreme Court has both original and appellate jurisdiction. Its original jurisdiction is basically over uh, a few kinds of cases. Say, you know, there's a dispute between New Hampshire and Maine over where the boundary line is. And so that kind of a controversy between two states The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over it, but mostly its jurisdiction is appellate. It reviews cases that come to it from the lower courts. It has broad powers to basically exercise that kind of jurisdiction over cases that are deciding issues of federal law or federal constitution.
1: So again, this includes cases that are coming up through the federal court, those district and circuit courts we just talked about, but also cases that may have started in the state court system, but that end up involving questions of federal law in some
4: way. But as you can imagine, there's like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases like that every year. And so the kind of cases that they take, uh, agree to review, Uh, generally speaking, are either cases where the lower courts have strongly disagreed. A federal appeals court may disagree with another federal appeals court. You have those kinds of splits in authority.
0: The circuit court splits.
4: Right. Federal law isn't exactly federal if different parts of the country can't agree on how that law is interpreted. Or very occasionally, if there is an issue that they consider of such enormous importance, that they decide to hear the case even before such a uh, split has developed.
0: Bazad mentioned that the Supreme Court could get thousands of these appeals a year. And we know it does not hear all of them.
1: Not even close. The Supreme Court is discretionary. It chooses which cases it thinks need to be reviewed because for some reason, a lower court's decision wasn't enough.
4: There's different categories of cases. Obviously, one major category is uh, cases arising under the federal constitution, First Amendment issues about free speech or uh, religion, uh, Second Amendment gun rights, Fourth Amendment search and seizure. Uh, So federal constitutional rights are a, a big part of their docket. But they also have to decide all sorts of questions of just federal law. Congress has passed the law. There's disagreement among the lower courts about what that law means. And so they're interested in important issues of, you know, federal statutory law as well.
0: Doesn't the Supreme Court have another role as well to act as a check on power? I mean, the court is focused on all these questions of constitutional rights that are playing out all over the country. But doesn't it also have to provide a
2: check on Congress and the president? Generally speaking, the courts don't like to get involved in actions that the president or Congress are taking, usually because those are what are often seen as political questions.
1: This is Erin Corcoran.
2: However, there are times in which Either branch of government may be overstepping their constitutionally prescribed limits. Um, And that is when the court has a vital role in checking that power to say, you, president, don't have that power under the Constitution um, and we're going to stop you from doing that because it it, it does violate the Constitution.
1: So the Supreme Court is constantly weighing questions of constitutionality, both in cases dealing with the powers of Congress and the president and and whether to take up appealed cases from all around the country.
0: Okay, let's go back to Tinker v. Des Moines, right? Because this is a constitutional question here. You have students who think that the school district creating this policy is infringing on their constitutional right to free speech. So once you've figured out that your case might be a good candidate for the Supreme Court, what do you need to do to convince the Supreme Court to choose
2: your case? over all the other cases they have to weigh.
1: You write a pitch.
2: Once they've gone to the through the circuit court level, a party can appeal and ask as a matter of discretion that the Supreme Court take on that case. That party would file what would be known as a petition for certiorari to the Supreme Court.
1: Sometimes just called a cert petition.
2: The Supreme Court votes on whether or not to hear that petition. Um, and then if they decide to hear that petition, they will then schedule a briefing schedule and oral arguments for
4: that. They get many thousands of these uh, so-called cert petitions every year and they grant cert in a small fraction of those cases. I think it's important to understand that most people think of appellate courts as being in the business of correcting errors of lower courts. The Supreme Court has said many times they don't have the manpower to do that. There's too many errors. So they don't take cases just to correct errors. They take cases to resolve these sort of important disagreements that have emerged among the lower courts.
0: So in Tinker v. Des Moines, the students and their attorneys submitted a cert petition saying something like, hey, this is a First Amendment case. We think you should consider it. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Is this the intense oral argument part?
1: Almost Before that, the two parties submit their arguments in writing. And then there are also
4: amicus briefs. Amicus briefs are briefs filed not by the parties, but by friends of the court, some organizations that have an interest in the issue. So the Supreme Court justices, and more realistically with the help of their clerks, review all of these briefs. And, you know, depending on the issue, they may or may not come to some sort of firm conclusion about how the case should be decided. The sort of ultimate uh, stage is the oral argument where each side gets a limited amount of time, typically in the U.S. Supreme Court, 30 minutes, to present oral argument and address any questions that the judges may have about certain issues issues. Uh, about the record, what happened in the lower courts or hypotheticals they may have about, you know, well, how would you handle this in, you know, such and such a situation.
0: 30 minutes seems like such a small amount of time. Yeah,
4: and it can get pretty
1: intense. So let's listen to some of the oral arguments from Tinker V. Des Moines. In this clip, you can hear the school district's attorney, Alan Herrick, defending the decision to ban armbands in part because students at school knew people who had been killed in Vietnam, and the protest could cause disruption. And then the Justice President Thurgood Marshall questioning that line of thinking. It was
3: felt that if any kind of a demonstration existed, it might evolve into something which would be difficult to control. Do we have a city in this country that hasn't had someone killed in Vietnam. No, I think not, Your Honor, but I don't think it would be an explosive situation in most, situ- uh, most cases. But if someone is going to appear in court with an armband here protesting the thing, that it could be explosive. That's the situation we find It could in. be. What? It could be, is that your position? Yes, it could And there be. was no evidence that it would be? Is that the rule you want us to adopt? No, not at all.
4: The practice in the Supreme Court is right after the oral argument, they meet, have a discussion, take at least a preliminary vote, and then the chief justice, if he's in the majority, assigns the writing of the opinion to one of the justices.
1: And if the chief justice happens to be in the minority, the most senior justice in the majority assigns the writing of the
4: opinion. Many decisions of the court are unanimous. But uh, in the Supreme Court, more than other courts, you have a majority opinion and often a dissenting opinion, one or more. And then there could be concurring opinions. The judge agrees maybe with the result, but has a somewhat different take on the analysis. So such such a justice may write a concurring opinion. And then those are draft opinions. And a lot of times as the case moves along and these drafts get circulated among the chambers of the various justices coalitions can shift, and opinions can get edited, and and out eventually comes the final product.
0: All right, so what happened with Tinker v. Des Moines?
4: The Supreme Court went in the students'
1: favor. It said that a public school's prohibition of students wearing armbands as a form of symbolic protest was a violation the of their First Court Amendment right, the right to the freedom of, of speech.
3: Protest, so long as the protest does not disrupt order or interfere with the rights of others.
0: And in terms of the actual people ruling, the people making these decisions, I'm curious how someone actually becomes a federal judge. Is it the same process as becoming a justice on the Supreme Court, like yeah.
2: nomination and confirmation? Exactly the same. They are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Um, and for federal judges and circuit court judges, the current rule in the Senate is they need to have 51 or more votes in favor of them.
1: But here's something interesting. The Constitution doesn't say a Supreme Court justice has to be a certain age, have a certain education, or even a certain profession. They don't have to have native-born U.S. citizenship. They just need to be trained in the law. There's no requirement that you've been a judge before, though a lot of nominees are judges that came from lower down in the federal judiciary ladder. And Erin had one last thing she wanted listeners to take away about how our federal court system
3: works.
2: The court's responsibility is to interpret what the law says. It's not to make new law. it's not to um, decide cases by what whether a judge thinks something is morally right or wrong. Um, you know oftentimes when I've talked with judges, they are confined and limited by the four corners of the statute and the four corners of the Constitution. And so sometimes they have to make decisions that they don't like, but that's they're, they're upholding their oath to uphold the Constitution and to interpret the law. And I think sometimes people think that the courts have more power than that.
0: This episode was produced by Christina Phillips with help from me, Hannah McCarthy, and Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Ketza, BioUnit, Sven Lindvall, Frequency Decree, New Thiel Records, Rocky Marciano, Walt Adams, and Arthur Benson. If you got a little something out of this episode and you're a fan of Civics 101, please leave us a review wherever you're listening. We love to know what you think what you like, what you don't, and how we can be the best little civics podcast in the world. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.